All right, welcome episode 40 of the Being There Dumb Out podcast. Rachel Lynch, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. No, it's, a, it's actually an honour. Um, I guess you're a big name in the sport and lots of individual accolades as well as as well as um, accomplishments in the team, the Hockey Roos team as well. So I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Um, first off, get us started. I'll let everyone know. Do a quick little spiel about who you are, where you come from. Oh, well, I've had to work on my spiel because it's changed recently. <laughs> um, I guess I'll, I'll go with recently retired Hockey Root. Congratulations on your retirement as well. Thank you. Um, it's been a really big transition period in my life, mm. actually, just post Olympics and changed my job and a few different things. So, uh, hockey has been a big part of my life last 15 or so years mm. internationally. Um, but also a nurse, do some mental health stuff. Uh, that's me. That's wild. So how did you get started? How old were you when you first picked up hockey stick? I was 12 and slightly unusual, um, it, I guess involvement initially, uh, there was no one in my family that played, which is often the case, Um, as in most people have a family member that got them into it and probably why I started a bit later. But in grade six, I had a sports teacher who was just super encouraging with all sports. So I I tried out for the state team for um, soccer, for basketball, Mm -hmm. rugby and hockey. (laughs) And I'd never played hockey before, but the school had some equipment. So I tried out as a goalie and a field player and uh, I got picked as a goalie and that was it. That's what. Yeah. So you were straight into the you had the pads on and everything. It was first the first position you were in. Yeah, it was it's kind of funny because, you know, we we cop a bit of flack for being like weird and all of these things. And I'm like, <laughs> I think I, I try very hard to change that reputation. <laughs> and I think the fact that I didn't make the choice initially, yeah. you know, I sort of did. Obviously I had a crack, but um there was the coaches there picked me as the goalie and mm. it went from there. So maybe that's why it was um it was not sort of circumstantial. It was like a yeah, it was just a decision made then mm. and thank, thankfully because I don't think I definitely wouldn't have made it internationally as a field player but, um, you know, those are sort of those sliding door moments that can change your life. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah. How um, it's it's crazy standing behind the nets and how fast the ball does come out to you. Like was it straight away did you feel like what was the feeling like when you were standing in the goal, <laughs> I mean, especially being so young and the ball's come at you so fast? What's that feeling like? Oh, I don't remember specifically. Yeah. It's always been something that I've loved the the unique elements of the position. I was always reasonably well-coordinated and ag- aggressive and able to throw mm. myself around. I think playing other sports, I did a lot of softball and baseball. Yeah. And so the, the kind of sliding influence was already there. Um, I was a catcher as well and just had good hand-eye. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was more than happy to fulfill the elements of goalkeeping um but you know i had a little period there where my coach in melbourne used to call me flinchy lynchy uh-huh. so it's not like you're immune to you know the ball coming out it's not like you're just like this brave um sort of freak of nature that can stand in front of a ball it's not like that at all i've had to learn that um but i guess all of the elements of the position is what attracted me to it and probably why i've, I've had success yeah that's wild. It does because yeah. Well, like I said, you're standing behind those, standing behind the goals, even when there's a keeper in front of me and in the net. So <laughs> you do you flinch. It's quite a speed. Do you know how fast that ball comes at you, especially um, up in the international? Yeah, it can be like hundred plus. I know Ooh. they they do a lot of um, speed testing with the drag flickers and and that. But um, it's amazing the equipment makes a big difference because. I'm the same when I'm coaching. You stand behind the net and you're not in control. You don't know <laughs> if there's a hole or if the goalie's going to stop it. Yeah. Whereas once you put the gear on, 
Um, and it's funny, I, I was saying the exact same thing to someone the other day because I now work in a COVID clinic. Mm-hmm. So I'm doing COVID testing all day and, you know, obviously we have people come through who are positive and they were like, why, why on earth would you want to work here? And it's like I feel so much safer at work than I do in a restaurant yeah. because I can trust the equipment yeah. and I trust the protection. And it's the same in hockey. You, you know mm-hmm. that you're safe as long as you're facing forward, whereas everyone else runs around in front of the same ball with no protection on. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, so it, it's yeah you, you got to trust it. Has there been how much improvement has there been in the equipment, especially for a goalkeeper? Has it improved since or increased in terms of like the technology that's been put into like the pads? Yeah, it has. Um, you know, I'm, I've worn Obo my whole career, yeah. and they've got a bit of a patent on the foam that they use. Mm. It's developed a lot, a, a lot of the shapes and. Um, from a protection point of view, it, it's always been pretty good, mm-hmm. but we've had to adapt certain areas because because of the way that we train and the amount of time we spend in our gear, the equipment does wear out much quicker than your average person. And like your feet, for example, as soon as the foam gets a bit soft, it really bloody hurts. Yeah. So you have to change it over a lot. So it quicker. is foam or is it like a special like a – It's a high-density foam. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because I was – there's this um, – I do a bit of martial arts. Um, oh, yeah. And they have the UFC that design their gloves. It's just basic foam. And there's this um, – Oh, I can't remember his name. He has, he has come up with his own brand of gloves. Okay. Called Onyx. O-N-X. Onyx. And um, they did this test. Well, like they just had the UFC glove foam out and they had his type of foam out. And then he they dropped a marble ball like to resemble like impact on the foam and it would mm. just, it would bounce. So like it would rebound off the foam mm. where his Onyx gloves, the, the marble would just dead stop. So they'll actually be absorbed into the foam. Okay. And what they'll kind of get, get getting around is that those well, the UFC gloves, you fighters get a lot of like hand injuries, like broken knuckles, broken hands, because mm. the foam just like you don't absorb like all the all the force goes into the hand instead of the actual glove. Whereas these ones, they're saying it's a bit more safer for the actual wearer because it's rebounding. I guess sort of similar. Well, we need a bit of both because mm. we want the rebound. So right, to get away. Yeah, so you, the rebound is really important to be able to clear the ball away. But they put, I know, um, Obo put similar foam to what you're saying. I think mm. they call it um, dead stop or, or something like yeah, that. Right. They put a layer of that in there. So that's the one that kind of absorbs. Mm. But the rest of the foam does the, I guess, repelling or the rebound because, mm. yeah, like, like that's a key element too. But you don't want it to hurt, but you want it to come off as quick as possible. Mm. Do you have to get conditioned? Like do your shins get conditioned to the actual impact and – all that sort of stuff as well. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure there's, um, you know, you wouldn't want to do an MRI on your feet or your legs because there'd be like bone <laughs> bruising and stuff all the time. But um, different things, you know, we're pretty lucky. When I first started, the kickers that we wore had like a um, really thick tongue, so they yep. still do, yep. like a shoe. Yep. Um, but the way they were sort of flat packed, when you would put it on, it would just rub and it would rub your shin raw. Like I had like oh, indents yeah. in my legs for a long time because – you had to bend it. So I ended up having to like shove them under a couch for a couple of days just to bend them away. Um, So there's little things like that. They're kind of like little battle wounds, but um, they've improved that technology now. So it's it's all very safe, very comfortable, Mm. and it allows you to do your job. I beg it's hot though. (laughs) It must be sweaty. It it is warm. Yeah, Tokyo was a really good challenge because um, it's funny end to end. So 2010 was one of my, was my first major tournament in India. Yep. And that was definitely one of the hottest tournaments I've been on. Um, sure. You know, it was like 40 plus and I was pretty 
new to the sport then as in you know probably didn't have the same fitness level I do now Mm -hmm. and then Tokyo to end my career there and again so hot and it's not just the heat because you can learn to you can acclimatize and you can learn to play in those conditions it's the fact that you just sweat non-stop because you you can't get air to your skin Mm. um, and all the equipment means you're sweating and you just cannot keep up with your hydration so it's more those sort of things you've got to think about rather than just the fact that it's hot. So being a goalkeeper and you're saying talk about your hydration is the only opportunity you have is at the quarter time breaks is that the only time for you to it, it is normally yeah. yeah so that's sort of where i i suppose i had a bit of a um different approach for tokyo mm-hmm. and i came up with the idea actually when i was when i was kicked out of the team so when i was training by myself i had this idea and um i, I wore like a camel pack you know the ones you go hiking oh yep yep so i had that under my gear and i filled it with a slushy so I had the tube come out the top, so it was fully yep, hidden. Yep. It came out the little neck section, and that meant yep. that during the game I could drink at any moment. So one, it was a way to keep up with my hydration, but it was two, it was doing the pre-cooling yep, yep. by having the slushy. Mm. Um, and, yeah, it, it actually worked a treat. It was a bit of a, a little hidden gem, I think, and <laughs> it meant that when I finished the game, instead of losing like four kilos, I'd only lost maybe two, yeah. which meant that you're not getting the same sort of detrimental effects, yeah. I suppose. Is that legal? Is that allowed? Yeah, what's well, hidden under the gear. So the only yeah. uh, restrictions on your gear is it can't sort of extend beyond a certain size. Yeah. Um, and because it was on my back, you, you didn't know it was there. Yeah. Um, but I kept it pretty close to my – like I kept it quiet because yeah, I was yeah. like, well, this – I felt like it was a game changer for me mm. and um, it, it really helped. Yeah, especially because um, being goalkeeper, you have to be mentally alert. And mm. when you start to dehydrate, you fatigue. Correct. So yeah. You lose focus and concentration and it's that split moment you – do and you, you, there goes the ball back for the net. Yep, exactly. And you want to be feeling the same sort of um, mental, I guess, alertness in the last minute as you are in the first. Mm. So, yeah, it was it was a good little trick and a good little, um, I suppose, experiment too. Because yeah. when you get in those climates, that's what really challenges you physically. And um, it doesn't matter how much fitness you do; sometimes it's your nutrition and your um, hydration that can be the game changer for you. Who kind of floated that idea by you? Did you just think of that yourself? No, just sort of it. Um, I had one anyway because I'd I'd had it since um, doing Kokoda many, many years ago and um, I just knew from – we went to Tokyo a year out uh, in the same month so that we could see what the heat was like and I was over there by myself and um, normally obviously you have two goalies but I was there by myself so I was like I really pushed – I pushed myself to stay in the net as much as I could and Mm. just – go to the extreme of what the conditions would allow. Right. And I just recorded everything. So I wore my heart rate monitor. And oh. from looking back on it across a two-hour training session, my heart rate was sitting where it would if I was doing like a um, reasonably steady state run. So I was sitting at about 80% for two hours, oh. even though I was doing nothing. Like I was in a game, like I'm literally standing there. Obviously there's times where I was making saves, mm-hmm. but majority of the time I was standing still. So it was just that physiological effect the heat was having on me and that gave me all this information and this data that I could then use oh. to make some decisions to try and, I guess, adapt to it and, and you know, do what I need to do to try and avoid that response on my body. Mm. That's crazy because you mentioned um, earlier that you mentioned like you weren't as fit when you when, – back in 2010 you weren't mm. as fit. Being a goalkeeper, <laughs> how much does – like obviously fitness is, is – a position based and that sort of stuff. So, how much of a fitness base do you actually need to be a goalkeeper? It's a good question, and I, I you do need you know if you're like a club level goalie, probably not that much. Mm. For us at the elite level, it's um, being able to back up training sessions. It's being able mm. to make good decisions. It's playing well in the heat. 
and all of those things. And I worked really closely with our physiologists and stuff after this tournament in Tokyo originally because I said, I was like, well, here's the data. I actually need to spend way more time on my fitness knowing how important it will be in a tournament like that. And um, coincidentally, and, you know, they were supportive and it's like obviously it's no good me going out and going for runs. You need to make it quite specific fitness. Um, but coincidentally, when I had some time away from the team, the majority of my training was my own cardio. So I was riding, I was doing different things. I was doing heat chamber sessions, knowing that that fitness again was going to give me that edge. Um, and luckily being, you know, 15 years into my career, I knew that my, my technical and tactical, tactical ability was pretty good and yep. I could keep that ticking along. But having that fitness, I was like, I want to be the fittest goalie at the Olympics, um, knowing that that might be the difference. And in looking back, you know, I only let in two goals across the whole Olympics and um, one of them was shouldn't have been a goal anyway. But um, I think because I could concentrate and we obviously defended well, it's not like I was peppered the whole time, yeah. but I knew I trusted my body. I knew that I could stay mentally alert and give myself the best chance based on the preparation that I did. Right. So when you were younger, did you have that same mentality around like fitness? Like what was your fitness back or what were you doing for your conditioning, I guess? When you were when I started, when you started well again back then. So coming from Victoria, we had a minimum standard for all of our state teams. Okay. So we had to get minimum ten on the beep test to even be considered for a state team. So okay, so you still had to run. Yeah, so from under sixteens onwards, you had to get this ten, and um, probably up until oh, it was well beyond twenty. I think till twenty ten with the Aussie team, we did all the fitness testing and all the running that the field players did. Right. So yeah, I, I was I was pretty. You know, I was fit, um, not their level, but I was mm -hmm. definitely fit. And when I sort of coach, when I coach kids now, it's a question that comes up because goalies traditionally known as maybe the fat kid that can't run or, you know, the one that – and I think it's great that it's open to everyone. But if you want to do well at this level, I think you firstly do need to be fit from an injury prevention and all of those things. But if nothing else, there's something about doing a, a hard fitness session with your teammates and I hate the times where – you look at them just like absolutely, you know, busting their bums and then at the end high-fiving each other and you're not included in that. Mm. So I really encourage young kids to do all the same training, um, you know, within reason, but for that reason, just the com yeah. camaraderie and the, um, I, I suppose, all the endorphins and all of those things that come from those the sessions. Bonding, yeah. Yeah, that you, you just won't get if you're off the side doing your own little agility or, or skipping it all together. Yeah. It's like a team struggle. All the... Now, I read this book, Tribes. I've mentioned it so many times on this podcast. So I'm sorry for everyone who listens. <laughs> um, but it's the shared, uh, the shared struggle that people have, all these tribes had with each other about actually surviving and yeah. being able to stay alive. It's the same thing with team sports. It's a shared struggle of, you know, doing a hard session or you might have gone through a period of, of bad form and the team lost a couple of games or whatever. And then you've some somehow through hard work and perseverance, you've pulled it all together and hmm. you create a closeness yep. as a group that you can – Maybe you can share and, and go forward with it. Yeah, well. love that. And I'll have to read that book. I haven't. It's, haven't it's a, it. uh, can't see it from here. Sebastian Salmerado's in there. Okay. Um, it's really, it's really short. I actually got, got it done in two days. So if I, got, if I got it done in two days, most people can <laughs> get it done within a day. Okay. I right. reckon. So the, you, did you get picked up in the VIS? Yes. You get identified there. What year was that? Uh, 04. 04, wow. Well, it might have been end of 03, but 04 was my first um, year. VIS and in the senior state team. Mm. Uh, and then, yeah. So how does it look so for your career from that stage to when you got picked up into the, or you got selected in the hockey ruse, how long was that? And what was the kind of, 
the kind of the struggle or I guess the period of growth mm. through that period. So I had two years in the VIS and playing for Victoria and I was fortunate to play under Rachel Armisen. So she was the goalie at the time, the Aussie goalie. Oh, wow. She's also Victorian and my absolute idol. Like I just adored her and, you know, she was just such a legend. So I was very fortunate to play alongside her. Um, the, the, the fallback from that was, I guess, well, unfortunately it meant I didn't get much game time. So happy to, you know, do my um, apprenticeship and learn from her and just get time here and there. But it got to the point where for me to get exposure to the national coaches I needed to play. Mm. So my coach organized for me to play for Northern Territory. So I did that in 06 and went up there and I had a ball. It was so good. Like they, we just got absolutely pumped every game. Um, but the whole experience was great because these girls just, you know, they had had a lot of fun, but they knew expectation-wise they probably weren't going to win. And it's just those, you know, like when you score one goal, I think we only got one full tournament, tournament maybe, uh, just absolutely ecstatic and, you know, we celebrated. And um, mm-hmm. But I do remember after that because, uh, yeah, getting peppered is a good thing for a goalie and, right. and I got to, you know, I suppose show what I could do. And then after that I, a few people were kind of like, oh, you, you might get an opportunity. Team came out and I wasn't on the list. And then it was um, a few months after that there was an injury to the Aussie goalie and I got the call up from the national coach. So I wasn't in the Aussie team or anything, but I, I was obviously on their radar and I got called up to debut. So it was, it was a, yeah, I mean, I was really fortunate to have that sort of transition into the Aussie team. But, um, you know, I guess I have my coach to sort of uh, thank for making those decisions because you don't know when you're younger. Like, unfortunately now I think I look at sort of younger kids and it's like, if it doesn't happen straight away, they're like, oh, well, I need to go play for another club or I'm not getting game time here, so I need to go over here. Mm. Whereas the value for, for I think me and I guess my generation coming through was you, you sat on the bench and you listened and you learned and, and, you, and you waited and you do all the right things, but you've got to spend that time, I guess, earning your spot. Right. Like it, mm. it, it didn't happen straight away for me and not many people does it happen straight away, but it's the same with... Um, you know, looking back at the amount of time that I did spend on the bench, even playing for Australia, I played 233 games, but I did the maths one day and there was over, well over 450 from when I debuted to when I finished. Oh, wow. So that meant I sat on the bench for nearly over another 200, either sat on the bench or didn't didn't get picked. Um, and it's not like, you know, I had four or five years where I was injured or anything yeah. like that. That was literally just non-selection where... I wasn't in the team and, and that's the stuff that mm. I think teaches you and builds the resilience and all of those things. But, you know, I'd probably challenge nowadays like how many kids would be willing to sit on the bench for 200 games <laughs> without. Yeah, I, I know that a lot of them don't, <laughs> especially working in the waffle teams and then over in, in SA with the with the sample. We would have the similar discussions amongst coaches and even the older players. It's not the, like it's not the same as AFL. You get seeing our kids who get drafted, you know, first round and they can play that first year. And there's, they they still have that same mentality when they're playing in the in the waffle or the sample. Those younger kids who come up from Col- Colts or under 18s, they mm. think they can play league in their first one or two years. But those older guys were like, well, I didn't get, I didn't play consistently in the league side, like consistently, like round after round. I might have played one or two mm. before that, but I wasn't playing consistently until I was like 25. Mm. And they don't under- well, they they don't understand it or they don't see that as a as they want to play straight away. Mm. I'm just too eager. If they want to see success straight away, it's one of those things that maybe in a pathway where they don't get mentored enough or they don't see it happening enough that they, they feel like it needs to happen straight away. Mm. A little breakdown or something down 
happens. It's hard when it's a, a shift in generation and sort of, I mm. guess, expectations. But I think that because there's so much value in it, that right. at the time you don't see it. But when you look back, it's like, well, that's where your biggest growth is and, you know, that's where the learning happens. For you as a goalkeeper, how much confidence comes into play in terms of like performance? Heaps. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a huge part of it. And that's why a part of me is so interested in it, like the psychology of the position. Because how do you, you know, how do you coach or teach a 15-year-old kid that you lost 5-0 but it's not your fault? Right. Um, so it's going through that process of understanding what's savable, you know, what, what isn't, what's a good goal, what, what could you have done different. And I'm certainly at that level now where every single I'm very critical of my performance and you can generally, you could always do something better, but it's being able to just quickly, switch, um, I guess, move on from mistakes and things. And, and that's probably one of the biggest challenges because as soon as you get a bit down, um, of course, that leads to probably another error, maybe another goal, and then it just, the flow on effect is so disastrous and uh, definitely missing out on the London Olympics going through that experience helped me in my preparation for Rio, my first Olympics, um, which, you know, took me 10 years. And a part of it was the sort of like the paranoia and the lack of confidence I had in those Olympic years that I had to change in order to, you know, build that belief in myself so that I didn't have the fluctuations in performance. All right. So what changed in your mindset? Was it more of the fact that you need to- you just have to accept the fact that if you're getting peppered with, I don't know, for example, 10 shots, that one's going to go through eventually or? Uh, no, it was more, I think, um, well, the actual process that I went through in, in 2016 was around um, positive affirmations okay. and teaching myself to, one, not that I'm, 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 I'm a pretty confident person, but in those Olympic years it was just this fear of it's going to happen again. Because in between the Olympic years, I had real success, com games, you know, number one keeper, gold medals, different things like that. But then when London happened, that whole year I was just like so anxious about I only got three games in that year and I knew that I had to play well to then get the next game, to then get the next tournament sort of thing and, and it didn't happen. So it was just this fear of like, well, oh, you know, if I stuff up here, this will happen. And then, you know, you're looking at the other goalie going, well, that was a good save. And then the coach will say something to them and you're like, ah, like, uh, you know, what's it all mean? Mm. Whereas my process was always back to me, back to me, back to me. Just what am I doing? What am I working on? And not being distracted by all the other stuff because no, nothing in your, your your ability changes. It's just your mindset around what it all means that then causes you to play poorly. Um, so having, you know, I'll look back on London and go, well, the reason I got selected in 2016 was because I missed out of London and it made me or forced me um, forced me to do things different around my, I guess, mental state and my belief. Yeah, it's so, it's so, so hard to, I guess, reflect, like reflect, think back on it, and then be like, it's your inability to, you can't really see what's happening, and you're doing it like it doesn't flow. Like you, you, it's so hard to put it into words because you get confused or something, or you might get confused mentally, but it doesn't actually affect your ability to do it. Mm-hmm. but it's yeah it's, oh, it's so hard to explain but you know what i mean yeah i do because i get almost a similar feeling when you do sparring you might get have a few hard rounds with someone and they keep getting shots and you can't get one on them mm. but if someone else can roll in yeah and then it's you'll be able to pepper them with with jabs and they can there's a you know they could almost take something gets taken away from your ability it's like in a mindset way mm. you're you, you lose confidence in that 
reduces your performance almost a little bit. Yeah, well, I'm, I've never done it before, but I imagine it's similar around like the clock's ticking in a team sport and you know you need to score. Yeah. And it's just like having that belief that it's like we will get an opportunity. Like we know we will and we've always had that with Australia, especially in hockey. You will get an opportunity. So it's like that patience and maybe in the sparring it's like doing all the right things, knowing that an opportunity will open up. And you've got to be ready for that rather than just being like, ah, you know, like. Yeah, maybe I'm, maybe it's like you force it too much. You're trying to make something happen when it, when it. It's not there. It's not ready. And that's what opens me up a little bit more. Yeah. Well, I mean, as I said, I've I've never done, so I don't understand. Yeah. Yeah. What you're saying is spot spot on. Yeah. So it's it's just, yeah, that sort of being patient and yeah. As soon as you force it in any sport, when you try and force it, it, it's not natural. And then that changes technique. And um, so maybe that's sort of part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Also, as well with being a goalkeeper, there's a lot of communication, and it's, you're almost setting up the defence, right? So, how does that all kind of work work its way into like in your career? Did you have to work on that a lot? Were you kind of shy at the start, and then you had to kind of you built into that kind of because it's like a leadership role, kind of on on field. Yeah, I don't know. Like, it's funny. Like, I think about this often. I suppose for everyone, when you think about your childhood, like, do you actually remember, or do you just go off what people have told you? Right. Um. So I don't. I don't remember. Um. But the communication was always a really key element and I, I was really lucky. I had a good goalie coach from a young age when I joined the VIS, uh, Michelle Flouch. She was incredible and I guess I learned from the best right at the start. So I had this foundation of really good basics and um, I learned how to train. I learned to love the boring stuff and definitely communication was something that she helped me with. But um, it's a real challenge for all goalies because people come into the sport and, so, as I was saying earlier, sometimes it's the shy kid that, that's mm-hmm. in there or whatever and that's such a key element. And I suppose I have learned to use it as a weapon where the better my communication is, the less work I need to do. So if I can organise my defence well enough, then I won't need to make as many touches or when I do make the saves, they'll be in, you know, harder positions for the shot or, or whatever. And mm-hmm. I think it's it's definitely underrated from a – a coaching and a selection point of view because uh, I guess if you if you just look at it um, from a really plain point of view, you go, oh, well, the goalie's not doing much. But, in fact, maybe it's what they're doing through their communication that is is the real skill. Mm. Um, and Ash Wells, who uh, I played with for many years, she was also Victorian. Her and I used to chat about it a lot. It was really frustrating because you'd watch a game and you could even just look at it and go, well, we get less touches. And it's like, well, why? And it, it's because we're both, you know, really strong communicators. We have really good connection with our defenders. Yeah. Um, we understand each other. They know what we're going to do. We know what they're going to do. And you put a lot of time and effort into that. That's off-field work and all of that so that the ball doesn't get to you. But from the outside, it's just like, oh, well, maybe only had five touches and one was a goal, so that doesn't look as good as 10, 10 or 15 touches. Mm. Um, so I, I try and teach, but it's a really hard thing to teach. Oh, 100%. Yeah, but it's such a such an important part. One of the things I love to do, especially I like to watch football or especially in hockey, is being able to watch a bird's eye view from behind the goals because you actually can see mm. all the last line of defence in AFL, like the fullback or whoever is in that last line or even a goalkeeper. You can see the point. You can kind of see. You don't actually hear the communication on the TV or whatever, but you can kind of see how way you're moving and then the defence moves along with you as well, which is uh, one of the wild things to see because it was underappreciated, I should say, because you always mm. watch on TVs as spectator views, the side-on view. Mm. You don't really get to see the full screen and from behind the goals you can see how it all works and how it all moves as a unit, as a yeah. as a defensive team. Yeah, well, Tokyo was an interesting one. I, I don't know what you could see on or hear on TV, but the fact there was no crowds, 
that changed things too because normally leading into an Olympics, we're talking about the our nonverbal communication and, and checking mm. and all that because, you know, once you get into a packed stadium, you can't hear each other. And for us in hockey, it's only really your World Cup, Com Games, Olympics that that happens. Most of the time we can hear each other, yeah. uh, whereas this time it wasn't an issue and it, it, it's so valuable to have that full awareness of being able to hear each other on the pitch. Uh, and so we're pretty spoiled with that this time. Did it work the other way? Could you do the opposition or the other te- uh, like the other or your opponents? Did they could they clue in and, and hear easier what you're saying? And the English speaking ones, uh, yeah, well, a lot of them, of course, a lot of them aren't. Um, oh, look, you can't give too much away. Yeah. As in, even if they could fully hear everything, it's not like the the things that have any sort of tactical significance. We don't yell out, yeah. um, you know, like variations we're going to do and stuff, but. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely the benefit outweighs sort of any kind of yeah. the fact that the other team can hear it. You know, it's interesting. The UFC obviously they had no crowds there for a while, and a few of the commentators are actually ex fighters, and sometimes the really good ones would actually say during a fight, "Oh, he needs to do this better to be able to you know counter strike or do whatever." Mm. And one of the fighters heard him, oh, really? took the advice, and they, they knocked it. the other guy out. Because <laughs> why? And then after the post fight interview, he said, "Oh, so and so heard his advice in the thing," and Amazing. then they were questioning him, "Have to be quiet." <laughs> but yeah, obviously it's the same thing in fighting. You have different speaking. Um, you have yeah, not English and then non non English fighters, and sometimes there would be like codes, different codes for different strikes and that sort of stuff. So yeah, yeah, okay, definitely interesting. What the UFC's done now, they've um used they used to do they have UFC fight nights, so three three weeks out of the month they would have fight nights and then one big card every month. And that yep. would be the pay per view. But what they've done now through the whole COVID thing is they've done it all in house. So they have like a UFC performance center. Have you okay. heard of that? No. It's like a like almost similar to like a waste sort of setup yeah. for like okay. for the UFC. So they could have they host all their fighters in Las Vegas. So they'll say put them all in house. So they have a little cage, but only have like fifty people. Kind of buy tickets and show up, so that would be wow. their their three weeks out of the month, and then they have their one big one big pay per view fight with our host. They go to Vegas, or they'll go somewhere Madison Square Garden or something, so they get all their money. So that way, they can make it made it cheaper for them to okay. host an event in house. Mm. It's kind of interesting. They that was, that was their first kind of the first. I think they were the first walk back after the after the whole pandemic. Really, they were the ones. They it was Mother's Day. They were their, that was they broke up over February. March, April, Mother's Day, April, start of May, start of May's May, yeah. Mother's Day. Well, it's yeah, adapt or die, isn't it? That's the one. I think all the sports that have evolved like that, the ones that have money, like obviously it's been a much smoother ride, but, yeah, you've got to adapt because otherwise what do you do? <laughs> do you know what else they did? They did a um, they had UFC Fight Island. Did you hear about this? No. Wow, they did. <laughs> they in Abu Dhabi, they, there was like a whole section of the similar to what they did in Tokyo, like a bubbled off area mm. in Abu Dhabi. So they would have they had a lot of fighters fly in, you know, about a week beforehand. Obviously, get them all. Oh no, they flew them all into America first, tested them there, <laughs> then flew them from America to Abu Dhabi, and then obviously tested them along on the way. But it was all sectioned off, bubbled off area. But then they'll fight them off on this fight island. So all the, <laughs> they could like, is it sort of sectioned off? And yeah, obviously Abu Dhabi have all the money in the world. They can host this sort of stuff and put all the infrastructure up. And yeah, yeah, sounds like reality TV. Was it very similar? That was one of the ones that um, Conor McGregor fought on that card, one of the big ones in early, early last year. And he came in in his eleven million dollar yacht. And of course he, he did. did. <laughs> well, he got too much money to know what to do with. Yeah. 
So what was your experience like? What was the feeling like missing out on London and then being able to make Rio in that 2016? It was Rio, right? Mm. So 2012, 2016, what was that kind of period? Obviously disappointment at the start. Mm. And what was a turning point to kind of get your mindset right and to get yourself in the mindset to attack, I'm going to attack Rio 2016? It followed a pretty similar trajectory because – 2014, we won another gold medal in Com Games. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was the main goalie there, yep. number one goalie. Then we went to the World Cup and um, uh, we came second. So we got silver and that was huge for us. And so I knew I was on a pretty solid path. I think that year I got um, goalie of the tournament at the World Cup and, and a few different things. But it didn't really change anything. I knew I had to do a couple of things different. So the two things that I did for 2016 – the first one was um, in the Olympic year, normally we're not allowed to work or study. Okay. So normally in other years we can if you can manage to fit it in around training. Awesome. But Olympic year we're essentially like on call. So but in the two Olympic years, uh, I, I guess I learned that that didn't really work for me. Mm-hmm. Um, my nursing was pretty important and I guess having that perspective. So at the start of 2016 I sat down with the coach and essentially like begged him to let me work. Mm. And all I was asking for was one day a week. That's all I wanted, but um, managed to agree on that. Um, and it's not just as simple as working. It's because obviously you need to have a day where you can, like I didn't want to miss training for it. So it was sort of negotiating that we'd have this day that was a bit, you know, free from activities or half day given it was shift work. Mm-hmm. So that was a really key part because I think having that um, time away from hockey where I'm just not thinking about hockey 24-7 because it, it just honestly didn't work for me. So that perspective helped. And then uh, the, the affirmations that I mentioned weirdly came about through a, um, a sponsor of mine. So I had a, a sponsorship with an organic chicken farmer <laughs> and I used to go to Subi markets every Saturday yeah. and pick up some chicken. Uh, and I know it sounds a bit weird, but most companies won't give out money, but I learned that companies are more than willing to share produce. Yeah. And for them, you know, like what's a kilo of chicken? Whereas for me, it was like that's huge. And, yeah. and I had a, a dairy and a beef sponsor as well. Oh, wow. But anyway, this chicken farmer, I went to pick up the chicken one day and he's like, oh, how many days? And I was like, till what? <laughs> and he said, till Rio. I was like, oh, I, I don't know. And he's like, nah. He's like, you need, to, you need to know this information. You need to be already already there. Anyway, from that, we ended up going for a coffee because I was like, this is weird. You know, this is the chicken farmer. Went for a coffee and turned out he did sort of like a bit of life coaching stuff. Yeah, right. We sat down for a couple of hours and he just talked to me around – I suppose, um, neural pathways and different things, how the brain works and how it can't tell the difference between, you know, you, you, what's real and, and what's not and what, mm-hmm. you, what you're telling it kind of thing. So he helped me write out these affirmations and um, I can't remember exactly how long I got, but let's say in the you know eight to ten months leading up to the Olympics, I had this little, little piece of paper. I didn't show, I think my boyfriend at the time was the only one that saw it because if you read it, it sounded like, pretty arrogant yeah. and things that I wouldn't say out loud. I'm, you know, trying to be really humble and all that. But this was about training my brain to believe these things. Mm. And it was all the areas about my leadership, about my fitness, um, you know, my performance and stuff. So I read it every single morning and every single night. As soon as I woke up last thing at night before I went to sleep. And, yeah, it, obviously each day of training there was parts of it that I was having to really practice as in, mm. you know, it was like, like I said, back to me and, my race, my reality, all this sort of stuff. And it was huge. And I think that allowed me to have a really consistent year. I played well throughout the year. I was pretty level-headed mentally. You know, there was obviously times where I had that sort of fear of it happening again, but it wasn't a, a kind of 
paranoia like it had been in the other years. And, yeah, I remember the, the day that the team came out. I think it was actually my birthday. Um, we were allowed to go wherever we wanted, so that's sort of generally what happens with an Olympic team. You can be with family or friends and it comes okay. in an email, so you get to choose when you open it and whatever. Uh, and, yeah, I was in Warrandyte back in Melbourne and, yeah, opened the email and my heart was going just a million miles an hour because you just like it's all you want and, yeah, refresh, refresh, refresh because <laughs> the email's always a few minutes late. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, my name was on there oh, and wow. just the relief of all that sort of hard work. Um, but, again, like looking back, having that experience and going to an Olympics a bit older I think helped me too because I didn't go there and just feel completely overwhelmed. Like I really got to soak up the experience but I was really happy with how I played and felt sort of pretty steady and um, all of those things being older and a bit more experienced just makes the, the whole Olympic campaign much easier, I oh, think. Yeah, yeah, be able to handle the pressure and yeah, you can, yeah, Bit older, a bit more perspective, be able to soak it all in a little bit more. Yeah, and then the same sort of thing I guess people got this time with Tokyo and why I said to many people afterwards, it was actually a blessing in disguise there was no crowds because when you walked out there, it felt exactly the same as it, as it did, you know, here at Perth Hockey Stadium with no one around. Mm. So I felt like all of the younger athletes actually performed to their potential because they didn't have this sort of gri gripping um, pressure and nerves and anxiety like obviously stepping out onto a hockey pitch with no one versus 20,000 fans is going to make you feel different physiologically and it's much harder to perform when you step out on the pitch and your heart rate's already at 180 beats as opposed to walking out there and just feeling like because you don't know that there's millions of people watching on tv <laughs> once no. you get out there um so it's kind of the same it achieved the same sort of thing for yeah. people that you're those Positive affirmations that you had written down, I feel like is great. Like it's one of those things that it could almost like a centerpiece to your training and it brings it back to what are those things that are most important about you and what you want to go, almost like goals are mm. essentially. Did you feel like you were writing those down and you said it sounded almost arrogant? Did you feel like you were kind of forcing yourself to be like that? Did you feel like, I don't know, because I don't know the specific examples, but like, do you feel like it was almost – you have to lie to yourself to be like that. That makes sense. Uh, no, I don't, because I I did believe those yeah. things, and um, like you, I understand what you're saying. It's yeah. like being like, oh, I'm the best in the world. And it's like, well, are you? Probably yeah. not. So that it's got to be um, uh, realistic. Yeah. Oh, yeah, but also I was at the point where I I knew I was good enough. Mm. I knew I was the best goalie, and in 2012, I probably wasn't. Well, clearly I wasn't, but I. I performed under my potential because of this mindset stuff. Mm. So I think it's having that. Um, you've definitely got to be realistic, but for everyone, you can find those strengths. So maybe it's not across the board, the things that you believe about yourself, but it's fascinating to see, you know, if I looked at my teammates of 27 athletes, there's probably 23, 24 that really struggle with confidence and belief. And you're like, how? Like they're the best in Australia and some of them almost the best in the world. And they don't believe in themselves. Mm. And I think because throughout your career you put a lot of emphasis on coaches and what they say to you or parents or whatever. Mm. So naturally there's going to be times where they're like, yeah, you know, you're the best, that was awesome and you feel really good. And there's going to be other times where you're like, no, nah, not good enough, that was rubbish. So if you allow your belief in yourself to fluctuate based on other people, it's always going to be a roller coaster. Mm. So that's why the importance comes back to you and you having that belief in yourself and that's the only way you can keep it level because 
there'll always be selection. There's always going to be times where you're in, you're out, whatever. And of course, yeah, it's going to be up and down based on what other people are saying and what's on paper and, and what's actually happened. Whereas if you have that inner belief, you can, oh, okay, I wasn't selected. doesn't matter. I know I'm good at these things. I need to work on these things. Let's just carry on rather than just being like, oh, my God, world's ending. I've not mm. been picked. Uh, who am I? What am I going to do with myself? Yeah. Um, so I think that's where the power of it is because I, maybe it's a female sport thing and a, and a team sport. You look at individual athletes that are, we, would, we would classify as cocky um, or arrogant. It's like, yeah, but that must be so much easier for them because they just always believe they're going to win. Whereas we have people that just always believe they're going to stuff up and no wonder there's inconsistent performers in sport. So I think that's where, yeah, it's important to have that sort of inner belief in yourself and not be relying on results, on parents, on coaches. Yeah. So yeah, feedback is such a big thing, especially well, I deal with it as well with, with footy players and other athletes as well, being able to give feedback but then have to construct the feedback that I'm – Soften yeah, exactly. <laughs> like I'm trying to soften it up just so they can bring it on board and and take it but not be so harsh that I'll make them cry or, you know, hurt their feelings. Mm. But it's hard to address a way that they have to action on it as well. It's not something that they need to sit there and, and sulk about, but I want to, you need to say it in a way that makes them, makes them take action on that feedback, whether it's good or bad. Mm. How does that how does that work for you? What's the kind of an effective way that a coach has given it to you, like feedback and have you act, taken that what in a way that you've taken that feedback and give taken action on it? I think it comes down to the rapport you have with the coach. Yeah. So as a coach on the flip side, mm. it's getting to know your athletes. It's showing them that you care. It's showing them that you do believe in them. So even though I've said about that having that belief in yourself, the the greatest gift a coach can give you is their belief. Mm. And, and that comes from selection, that comes from taking a chance, that comes from all of these different things. But um, I think of coaches, you know, like my, my VIS coach in, in Melbourne, um, Stacey Strain, we're, we're great friends, so that obviously helps. But over the years, having, um, having a good rapport and a, a trust, it, it won't matter what she says to me, I'm going to hear it and I'm going to take it on board. Whereas when you have that sort of like butting heads with particular coaches and all you get is that sort of, critical feedback it's kind of like stuff here I don't want to hear it and why should I do that sort of for you or because you've told me to do it um, so there's a lot in those the relationships and it's a big thing now we talk about um, coaches having care for their athletes for many reasons but this is one of them because when you know like your friends you care about what they think and you're more likely to make a change if they tell you something because they're your friend and you know it's coming from a good place mm. whereas we've all had coaches where you're just like no, that's not coming from you just want to shoot me down yeah or so i yeah i think to, to conclude you're more likely to have an athlete make a change if you have a better relationship yeah it's so difficult though because it's you got other factors that influence how you act or react to one other like someone could have a could have had a bad day one person could have had a good day and mm. how you know it's not that you, you do it on purpose i don't think if I've ever been grumpy with someone, I've done it on purpose. It's more, more or so the fact that I've let other things influence the way I've approached the situation, if that makes sense. Mm. There's always those things that kind of get in the way. And well, it's maybe it's more of a thing that for myself or for other people who react that way, it's more about just try to – it's hard to say to someone, walk in, walk into the situation. Like he walked to the footy club, everything that's happened outside of it, it's, it's 
you know, it doesn't matter anymore because I'm walking to the club. I need to be like, whatever happened during that day, I need to forget about it. It's hard. You almost need to, it's like how you react towards emotion. You might, you know, you just need to take a deep breath. You not react straight away. Mm. If someone gives you negative feedback, maybe you just need to take a step back. Okay, just reflect on it and then maybe come back the next day once you slept on it. Yep. We, uh, on that as well, something we implemented with the Hockey Roos, and it was more around mental health, mm-hmm. but just when you were speaking, it made me think of it. Um, we implemented like we call it our check-in. Right. So when you get to training, everyone will have a little chat, you know, get ready, mm. strapping, whatever, and then just before we go out onto the pitch for the session, we all get together, put our arms around each other, and it's your moment to check anything in. So it's just the players. So if it's something good, great, share that. You know, we're, we all live away from family and friends and support networks, so it's important to celebrate the little wins. But if there's something that's happened for you or that's going on for you in that moment, um, rough night, just found out someone, mum, dad, nan over east is unwell, break up with the boyfriend, um, had a car accident, whatever, you share it in that moment so that people are aware. And mm. we often find that firstly just sharing it takes the load off and then all of a sudden they perform better anyway. But like you were just saying, if, you know, one of my defenders is just moping around the pitch, I'm just going to absolutely get up them because I need them to do their job. But if they've just checked something in at the start of training, I'm obviously going to support them through it. So having that sort of vulnerability around I'm exhausted, I'm in a bit of a shit place, this just happened, then maybe people will deliver their messages to you a little bit different. But mm. but if you don't share that, how, yeah. how are you supposed to know? And let me just say, I'm, I'm a female, so we operate a little bit different. Yeah. I would imagine in a footy club world or whatever, it might be a completely different scenario because um, I'm also all for the tough love sometimes yeah, and yeah, yeah. just deliver a message because it's got to be timely, it's got to be direct. Um, but that's something that we've found helps a little bit too so that when people are feeling a little bit more emotional and a bit um, charged, then everyone else can adapt a little bit better to help accommodate that. Mm, that's interesting. How did that come about? Was that something that just you had to be, come up with the team psych, just kind of brought it in or was that something – as a group? No, it was um, myself and um, Ash Nelson. So we did a heap of stuff with Are You Okay? Yep. And, um, yeah, it was just a mental health initiative that we bought in. And I don't even – I'm not sure if the girls still do it these days. I really hope so because I see a lot of benefit in it. Mm-hmm. And it does take a bit of time because it's – you're asking people to be vulnerable. But I think those sort of interactions yeah. can um, do a lot for, the, I guess, the, the group. And um, I just think it's really important that – people share that stuff because if you don't share it, it's the same with anything mental health. If you don't share that you're struggling, how are people supposed to help you? It's an interesting point as well because obviously all you girls are from different parts of Australia and you get brought into this place as well. And it's good to kind of, you know, see other people be vulnerable around each other. It makes you warm up to each other. Mm. Obviously you're close, you do stuff outside of outside of that as well, but it's a good little place where it's just, all you girls as, as a team, as players, to be let the walls down a little bit and mm. share something that you might not if someone else was around. Or. Yeah, well, it becomes your family. Right. It's like a lot of workplaces. You spend more time with your colleagues than you do with your own family. Mm. So you've got a – that's a big chunk of your day and a big chunk of your life that if you're not sort of – if you're fully closed off for that part of your day, it's pretty hard. Yeah. How was it for you coming over from East to here in WA? What was the kind of the – biggest thing that you had to kind of adjust to was it the being away from your family um i put on four kilos in my first year oh god <laughs> because i lived at home and um <laughs> you know mum's great she used to cook my food and 
dinner. I remember I, like I've got it nailed from the drive home from the hockey center in the city. It's about 35 ish minutes. And I used to ring mum when I left. And honestly, she was amazing. As soon as I got home, dinner was on the table. Amazing. Mm. Then you come over here. I moved out. I lived with another girl just in a random share house. I didn't, hadn't, I didn't know her. Oh, All of a sudden you're going to prep all your own food. And, uh, just stuff like that. It's like hard. Oh, yeah. Um, trying to meet people too. Like I, yeah. I got a job. I, I had a graduate position in my nursing and stuff. Um, so that definitely helped. But it's just yeah, building your own networks and just life skills. And, again, I was a bit bit older when I moved. Mm. Super grateful for that. Whereas now sometimes we pull 17-year-olds out of their home environment, get them over here. What for? Like they're not emotionally ready. They're not mature enough. And it's hard enough as is to do the hockey in the high performance environment, let alone throwing in there no support or no family or close support, mm. um, new environment, living out of home, all of this stuff. Like it's, it needs a little bit more care and attention, I yeah. think. It's one of the things that I think that Americans do pretty well with their college system, how they, mm. especially with basketball, like a lot of them don't play NBA until they're 22 once they've, they've got a degree under their belt and True. they've had to live well most of them do they live away from um where they grew up in high school so they've had to build up a network of friends and go to college they have an education now mm. and usually when in that college system they learn how to do certain things like you know, cook or do whatever life skills. they learn some life skills and when they do that oh, then they are better for it when they do go they'll go professional anyway because mm. they're a little bit older they're more mature with their body too obviously the college system is great for their physical development mm. it's one of those things that's missing especially hockey but a young girls and guys play quite young and the same with AFL as well. There are a lot of young and footballers who start maybe a little bit too early. Mm. Well, that- the, the family system helps like a billeting scenario. So we've again tried to introduce that. A couple of the um, big girls when they first moved over stayed with a, a connection of mine and that worked really well. Like they went straight into a family environment. Mm. So they just had that extra support. You know, they had someone that could, pick them up if they need a lift or you'd get an extra meal every now and then because the family's already cooked and mm-hmm. so I think that helps. I know the AFL do that really well. It's almost like the you think the first two weeks are great. It's like a freedom. <laughs> yeah. And then once the reality hits uh, that third week, you're like, oh, I've had takeaway for the last 14 <laughs> yeah, days. This is hard. <laughs> oh. So what is it was the, the, around the cooking, what was your kind of go-to once you kind of figured out? Was it easy mm. little meal that you could make before training or after? Depending on the late early session. Yeah, I don't remember. I remember eating a lot of yoga and kind of yeah. nuts and stuff, just like really easy, easy meals. But, um, oh, like, I mean, mum was great. Like I knew how mm-hmm. to cook and I knew how to live at home, but nothing fancy. I'm very much yeah, even yeah. now I'm like a meat and veggies yeah, and yeah. meat oh, salad. Easy. Yeah, so it's oh, but it's just, yeah, it's just trying to have good routines and systems. Yeah, that's preparing, you know, doing your shopping early so that you've got food, just stuff like mm. that, but. Yeah, you, know, you don't learn this stuff until you get out of home and the Sunday, the Sunday afternoon, Sunday morning shop. Yeah, do that. Yeah, go to the markets. Set. Yeah, yep. whatever you got to do. Your markets? Where do you go? Um, not so much these days. I um, I do like a produce market, yeah. but I used to go to all of them for um, Subi and um, Pontar for the Manning market. It is now, and then the one in um, Claremont to pick up my produce. Yeah. Whereas now it's just yeah wherever. That's wild. <laughs> so um. Urea, Urea was the first one. How did you rate that after you? So were you once you finished off that, uh, sorry, the Rio Olympics, did you rate your performance? Was there feedback given to you from coaches and how you went and how did you kind of receive that and go into the following year or the following tournaments after that? 
it was a bit of a disaster. Um, so we we came sixth, I think. Mm-hmm. We got knocked down in the quarters and then all of a sudden we're in Brazil, in Rio, with an extra week that we didn't oh, bank on because um, we thought we'd be playing all the way through. So lots of stuff went down, which I won't, you know, go into, but um, essentially things around our coach and all this stuff that was just really nasty and the girls sort of all, we split off and we had time to spend with family and, um, you know, the, the group was forced to go and watch the gold medal match and people were just like, no, oh, no, because no, it was like, oh, this is a learning opportunity moving forward and it's like we're still grieving the fact that we just, you know, mm. blew it. Um, so heaps happened there and then we just had a full reshuffle in our staffing. Um, coach coach was sacked and all of these different things. So we never properly debriefed that Olympics and um, it only came up sort of a little while later that we hadn't done that and it's really important. So that was something they tried to implement from other tournaments because as soon as you finish, you obviously go back and yep. you'll have a break and then you go back into training, whereas Olympics often for some, that's it. And some of our girls, it was the last game they ever played. So it's almost a bit of a shame how it works mm-hmm. out that, yeah, we lost, but we didn't get to celebrate like for our captain, Madonna Blythe. That was her last game and we just all split off. And um, so it makes me pretty sad when you think about that. But um, it was just really heartbreaking. And then going into Tokyo, that's all we thought. We didn't want this to happen again. And it did. And, you know, obviously often what you think think about does eventuate and very different circumstances. Mm. Um, but, yeah, Australia as a as a nation needs to get better at those crunch games, those quarterfinal games, because it doesn't matter, you know, this time around, completely different. We won every single game leading into um, the quarterfinal and then lost that one nil. Whereas in Rio, we'd already lost a couple of games, had a couple of crunch games. It was, it was um, much closer, but it's just the Olympic format. So what do you do? Yeah, it's difficult. Did you, oh, that, uh, Rio, was it, how much of a media impact to have on, the, the feeling of the team like I'm not sure if you knew the Opals in that 2016 row they were they're obviously a very successful successful basketball uh, nation as well the Opals once they got kicked out the media back was uh, so much backlash in the media had Nat Burton on she kind of explained how they got they got berated in the media and social media and everything like that and how much of an impact that had on her uh like you know, feeling on towards basketball itself. Mm. How much did that did that have a similar impact with the hockey rules at all, or would you was was so much a bit more of what the coaches impacted the feeling towards? Oh, it was definitely the yeah the, what was happening with the coaches. I think I remember from Rio that it was one team sport after another, and mm. that's sort of where you're just like, oh no, like you know, mm. gold medal hope, gold medal hope is out, mm. and then you know, we even though we've not won a medal since 2000, people still see the hockey rules as gold medalists. Mm. So it was like we were out and then, you know, um, things happened with the boys and all of this. So it was a bit of a disaster. But um, that is one thing with hockey we're quite lucky that we've never really so cop. Yeah, we don't cop mm. that because people don't have the, the same expectation and our sport is just not in the media, media as much. So you do rarely get the, um, you know, negativity from the fans, which is something where you know, we're pretty lucky. Lucky, but then but you want people to watch and... It comes with the good and the bad, though. You want you have people, more people watching, and there's more eyes, more scrutiny comes on the on the yeah, back end. Exactly. You would have seen that the they, the Hockey Australia had that new app that you can watch. Yes, I that's did really see cool. That was released. Yeah, I yeah. haven't looked much into it. So obviously, you get all full coverage. Well, hopefully, yeah. this this was the thing. The FIH did the same 
um, with international tournaments. They've got this new app and you can watch everything. Great. Yeah. It's geo-blocked in Australia. Uh, um, you know, things have happened with KO as well. It's the same thing. Like it's just it's never sort of simple in our sport. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that's that's what we're missing. We need to be on, on TV because that's where the money comes in. That's where the oh, sponsors yeah. are. Hockey needs that. So it's great that they're trying to, you know, make some changes. Yeah. I always have this, especially with the Olympics and even other team sports where all the television rights, all, all the TV stations make all the money and it's the athletes that so it. get left to pick up the pennies after. It should be <laughs> the other way around. Exactly. Especially the Olympics is a big one because you watch it for the athletes. The athletes that draw the market in and then it's the IOC who makes all the money, mm, which is well, unfortunate. Yeah, I mean there's no sport. Uh, there's no money in our sports, but I think it's a blessing. It forces you to have another career and earn money elsewhere and um, have a different identity. Mm. You mentioned that as well with your nursing. It gives, like you wanted that day so you could work and it gives you a bit more perspective on life. Is that Did that make the training – not to make it easier, but it kind of fulfills your life. Is that the feeling behind it? For sure. For sure. And it, it's having that yeah other identity. So mm. it's like I'm not just defined by my hockey. So when things are going poorly with hockey, I've still got work. I've still got, um, you know, mental health stuff. I've got other things. Uh, when you put all your eggs in the one basket with your sport, it's, again, really easy to have those fluctuations in your self-worth. So I, I think – become a, a good person and do lots of different things and your sport will just sort of take care of itself in a sense. Mm. It's so well because, you know, because there's obviously so many stories about athletes, they dedicate themselves to the sport so much and it comes who they are and then something happens and then it just all goes off off downhill. How is it something that needs to be kind of educated from a younger age? Like you do do that with your coaching now. You try to educate younger kids to go off and have something like a hobby in the background or something. 100%. Like yep. And that's one of the things I'm probably most proud of when I look back at Rio. So I went through that experience with the coach of trying to convince him to let me work. And at the time we only had a couple of girls that were actually working, um, you know, some studying but not many. And then come Tokyo we had, I think it was every single member of the team was either working or studying in, in the year, in the preparation for the Olympics. And you know, you, I suppose your sport, sporting tragics and the coaches along the way be like, nah, not good enough. You know, you should be fully committed to the sport. I just I just utterly disagree. I think having that and within, within reason, obviously, if you're full-time work and absolutely exhausted and missing trainings, like yeah. that's not going to work. But finding that balance where you can have those other areas of your life um, makes a massive difference and, yeah, huge advocate for that. And I think it, it showed I'm probably one of – you know, so many examples, you know, even when when I retired, myself, Ashwell's, um, uh, Eddie Bone and Emily Smith, Emily Chalker, we all retired at the same time and we literally just slid across into our other lives. Mm. So from a transition point of view, like it's still hard and you're yeah. going to miss it, but we already had jobs. We already had, um, you know, pretty successful careers. We had other identities and you just move into that and then you find other ways to satisfy the kind of competitive drive and fitness and all of that so um makes a, a big difference we don't walk away with a, a big paycheck or no you know we don't have super mm. or anything like that but you've got a career you've got a degree you've got a career you've got experience you've got something on your resume did you feel at a time at all that was did you have your foot one foot in the door one foot out the other you, like with the it, sport with the sport yeah not at all no because no. it's yeah because i guess it kind of happens a lot with, with footy and, and same with martial arts too where it's towards the back end of someone's career skill kind of skill wise 
you kind of falling behind all the younger kids coming up and what happens that way you start most of them transition out into commentating and, and doing other media kind of stuff and then you can tell that affects their it affects the performance because their talent goes down. These young kids coming up, but they almost say one foot in the door, one foot out the other. Do you, that didn't happen at all. No, you know? I, I always wanted. Did you have to battle? Did sorry? Did you have to battle that thought at all uh, when you first started? When you like need to focus on career or focus on sport at the same time? Oh, like I've definitely gone on a journey with yeah. the balance. And when yeah. I first started, I was working full time because I was a graduate. And uh, I remember falling, like I'd sit down with my educator at, at work at the hospital and as soon as I sat down, like I literally couldn't stay awake. And it wasn't just the work, it was the combo of early morning right. hockey and work and stuff. So I went through that journey for sure. But um, I wonder if with some sports, like look at footy, that's their income. So their decision to stay on for another mm. year is another full year's salary. So maybe that's when we do go a bit too long in our career Whereas for us, it's like, well, if you're not performing, you won't yeah. get selected. Right. So it's pretty simple. That's simple, yeah. Yeah, you don't just get to kick on for another year and play rubbish because you won't get picked in anything. Mm. Um, and, yeah, some people some people do, but because we don't get paid, the, our agenda is, well, and for me, after Tokyo, I was like, I feel I could play on and I did want to. I felt like I was at the top of my game physically. I'm in really good shape and no injuries. Um, so why wouldn't I? But I had other things like, I'm 35, want to have kids at some point. Um, you know, there's, there's young kids coming through that I need to allow opportunity. And so there's all those other influences. But I didn't sit there and go, where am I going to earn money? I must spend another year in the hockey roos. Mm, okay. That didn't happen. <laughs> no. Well, that makes sense that way. You've yeah. like that. Well, because why wouldn't you? I mean, like, look yeah. at tennis players. You right. go to the Australian Same. Open and you lose round one, even if you're however many time Grand Slam champion, that's still pretty good money. Yeah. get like 100 grand just to lose <laughs> that'd be tempting <laughs> why would you walk away from that no that's right because then the same thing if they didn't have anything where would they go if you've got nothing else whereas i can walk out and go i can probably happy, earn yeah five times what i earn in hockey right in, you know doing other yeah. stuff so it's like this scenario of in a sense the grass is actually greener but you know not taking anything away from the sport and because i loved all of that you don't get to travel the world competing but the other areas of your life are pretty good too. It's pretty appealing. Like you said, you played over 200 games. 200 caps, is that what they call it? Yeah. 200 caps. What do you contribute to, I guess, playing that many games? Because also obviously not many people were able to play that many caps. What do you can put that down to? Oh, I'd probably say like the way I looked after my body because, yeah, yeah I went my whole career never missing an international game after injury or illness. Um, oh, wow. So I think, you know, staying in shape, I learned through the VIS how to train and how to um, build my body up. Yeah, and there's obviously a bit of luck too in yeah. genetics. Some people just have like they're riddled with injuries and sometimes can't be helped. Mm-hmm. So I was pretty lucky with that. Um, but I honestly believe that the, having that life balance. So I, I never felt like my life was on hold for me to play hockey. Mm-hmm. Like I was still achieving all the things. I was able to buy a house. I was still able to travel, have relationships, um, progress my career, do different things whilst playing so it's not like I was always sort of waiting for that to end before I'd, I could start my life mm. um, as a female the only thing is is kids that make it really challenging that you have to consider yeah oh, it's something so hard because obviously all male sports and there's not much <laughs> not much you don't have to worry about it too much you they can still do five whatever. kids yeah. and still do what they do it's so difficult do uh, obviously yeah you don't have kids or anything like that do you now I don't uh, but it, I've seen people try and 
you know, come back. We had um, Jody Kenny who had a kid and came back and um, it's it's hard. There's sports that are financially able to support it um, and hockey's a long way off with that because it's one thing to want to support it but you need to have the money there to, well, she can't just go away for three weeks and leave her no. child at home. Mm. Or, oh, you can bring your husband. Well, who, who earns money then if the husband comes away too, you know? When we're not mm. getting paid to do the sport, so yeah, that's very, very hard. Yeah, because obviously Daisy Pierce, she was probably the biggest one. She had the year off and then came back the following year, and still probably arguably in the best form. So it's not like you don't lose lose form or anything like that. But obviously, hockey you don't get paid, mm. and sometimes you get better. Like I know for females, having kids can sometimes it can improve your fitness just yeah. with the change in hormones and things. Yeah, so it's pretty interesting. <laughs> Casey, uh, when she first um saying, well, she maybe watch it. Well, we watched a video together. Um, and she was explaining like the early stages of, of pregnancy and all the hormone changes and whatever happens at the start. And it was like increased stroke volume and all these other things. <laughs> I'm sitting there going, this just sounds like increased performance to my to, to me. She goes, oh, all you ever think about, blah, blah, blah. You should have been like, I need to get pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, um, 2019, you were the FIH Hockey Goalkeeper of the Year. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yes. What was So what's the key thing that was different about that year that you were able to, you got nominated for that, you got Given that award, was it you able to play more games? You uh, I think it was work th- on yourself more. It was the third time I'd been I'd been nominated. I okay. think um, I don't know. It's, it's weird. It's a weird system. It's a yeah. weird voting system. Um, I think that was one of probably my top years, but there was probably yeah. two others. Right. And um, it's just it's a, a a weird vote. So that year the votes went my way. That's why it's hard. Like. If you've got a bigger profile, you're more likely mm. to win, and that's why often Belgium, Holland, uh, those countries, because they have such a big hockey following, yeah, they get more votes. So it's simple as that. <laughs> so about your performance that year, was it just you able to save more goals? It was a good year for me, yeah. and and often it's been the years where I've played more. Yeah, we've had times where we've shared the net, and for whatever reason, the coaches choose to do that. But the years where I've played like major tournaments where I've been the only goalie, I've I've played my best hockey and, again, funny that when the coach believes in you and lets you do your thing, you perform better. Um, whereas, I've, yeah, they've just sort of always had this sort of thing around you've got to share it and make it fair, whereas we're one of the few countries in the world that does that. Every other um, goalie in the world, it's like you're the best, you play every game. Right. But that's sort of we just have a different mentality in Australia for some reason. So that's how it works. So obviously there's two or three. I think was there three goalkeepers? Generally there's the three. Yeah. And then. In here in Australia, it's you try to share the load. A little loss. bit, yeah, because it's like, well, what if you get injured? I've not been injured in 233 games. Mm. Why would we plan for that? Yeah, because it's one of the – yeah, yeah, don't. So It's bizarre. It's And soccer the same. You know, you don't have your Premier League goalies switching. No. Um, so but you would switch in, in game? Yeah, sometimes halves, quarters, oh, wow. all different. Because that would throw everything out like we spoke about, the dynamics of how you set up and yep, hearing a different voice – Hearing or as a defender, hearing a different voice behind you now, mm. you might not see. Like, there's a be a trust thing too between your defender and you, and then another goal defender and, and the other goalkeeper too. Yeah, trusting well, what they say and what they see. We're very, really fortunate, Ash Wells and I, who, mm. um, with yeah, as I said, played majority of our career together. Very similar, very similar styles. Yeah, yeah. Um, Communication is very similar, so the girls didn't you know notice too much when we swapped in and out. Um, so that was fine, and it's just it's just one of those things that. We've, we've had this mentality and I don't agree with it, but it's, it is what it is. Yeah. Obviously you did 
would you say that 2019 was like your best year? Like you felt fulfilled as a hockey player or hockey goalkeeper in that year? Was that? Uh, maybe. 2018 was a pretty good year. Yeah. Um, 19 was good. I think 19 was the introduction of the pro league from okay. memory. So playing a lot more um, smaller. It's one big tournament, but playing in different countries, home and away season. That was pretty cool. Um, but honestly, I, I, can't, I can't remember what was different in that year. It might have been the first time we, again, from memory, we beat the Dutch. So we played yeah, them in Melbourne. Cool. We hadn't beat them in maybe like 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, that was a, a key moment and I, I had, I'm pretty – I'm pretty sure I only played half of that game, but I got player of the match and um, knowing whenever we play the Dutch, you know you're going to get absolutely peppered. And um, if, if I know that if I don't play well, we won't win because you have to be on fire as a defence and really, you know, really sharp as an attacking group to be able to score because you probably only get one chance. And, yeah, I, I think it was 2019, but that was definitely one of the fond memories of a performance for me individually and as a team. Mm. Does that fire you up? Fire you up knowing that you're going to come up against like a good sort of Dutch and you're going to get peppered and you can show off like how good you are. Yeah, I I love it. But I've also gotten to that point by going through experiences where I've been totally embarrassed by, Uh, by, you know, five, five nil, four, one, some score lines that you just like come up in your nightmares. Oh. Um, So it wasn't always like that. Um, I certainly look forward to that challenge. But to tell you what, if you have an, an off day, they'll punish you. Oh, for sure. If you start that thing, oh, you go into a game. Oh yeah, well, I want to. I want them to have as many shots at, as at me as I can. And then after that's like, oh, really? Yep. Wish I didn't First one goes in, you're like, no, um, go yeah. away. <laughs> Gosh. So obviously, 2018, 2019, like you said, very good years. And then that 28, 2020, what was it? 2020 selection at the hockey re selection was obviously very disappointing. Mm. And get selected for that for that year. Yeah. Talk us through that. So you you felt very good. And then you get not repaid back the faith from the coaches in the selection. How did that make you feel and kind of the feelings fall on from there? Yeah, I mean, it was, it, it became one of the sort of toughest years of mm. my life. And um, at the time, I was, I was tracking well. I think yeah. nothing really changed. I'd recently been, yeah, awarded goalie of the year and was in probably the best form of my career. Yeah, felt like I was doing some really good things within the group from a leadership point of view and all of that. And then to be um, not selected, it was just like just devastating and but super confusing as mm. well. Um, and then from the meetings, you know, it turned out it was more based on character rather than um, my performance and um, just completely unsubstantiated stuff and hence the the legal battle and the appeal and, and that all, you know, working out in both mine and Georgie's favour in the end and everything that flowed from there to have a huge um, inquiry and um, to lose, you know, so many staff members. It, it just sort of showed that we had mm. some problems there. And um, just for me personally, I think having had my experience with Rio and around my self-belief, it, it allowed me to get through that knowing that, I believed not only in my ability but in who I was as yeah. a person and I was able to stand pretty strong and proud knowing that I'd done absolutely nothing wrong. And, um, you know, as much as it was the circumstance was horrific, I, I still knew that I I was on the right track and that mm. um, I had the the full, you know, support of teammates and people from all over the world and that and that was kind of the, the pleasing thing when it happened people that had no idea what was going on within our program who who just knew based on 
one coaching clinic I'd done with them or one interaction in a change room overseas against them or whatever it was. They were like, we know you as a person, so something's happened here. Yeah, yeah. And um, to have everyone sort of just back me in there was was really great. But as I said, it was my belief in myself that that's how I was able to go through and fight it like we did and come out the other side. It's crazy how your non-selection was based on character, not on performance. It's something that's – you. That's like almost your worst nightmare. Yeah, well, it is. Of, you know, being a coach myself, being sitting in selection and someone brings up a character, it's like, well, yeah, it's a, it should be based on performance. And then I don't understand how someone like yourself, if you're sitting in front of me right now, and all the stuff you talk about leadership and helping your teammates, and how someone could see that as something that's negative, not want to base that on have you on the side because of that. I think that's quite disappointing. Yeah, well, there was a, there was way more to it, and there was just yeah. a lot of a lot of challenges and. You know, there's a reason that those people are not in the program mm. anymore. Um, but I guess it taught me that it's really important to stand up for the things that you believe in. And um, in sport, sometimes we just get caught in these positions where you're unable to speak because of fear of selection mm. and non-selection. And I've had it, you know, in, in jobs where you're being treated poorly, will you just leave because you don't accept that sort of level of behaviour, whereas in sport you can't leave because that means retiring or finishing your career. You can't go and play for another country. <laughs> um, we, we don't have that. And no. there is this sort of power and dynamic around it because you're essentially trapped in that environment. You, you do yeah. have a choice to go, but if you want to play for Australia, you have to sort of fall in line a little bit. Um, so, yeah, without going into it, it's essentially just about, you know, standing up for what you believe in and um, that was important to me and um, I'm really glad that I did. It's so powerful as well having the confidence in yourself to be able to stand up for what you believe in, something that not many people can do, have that in a, in a belief in themselves to be able to stand up for what's right. Yeah, and I probably wouldn't have like many years ago. Mm. I think I've I've always had that sort of view and being willing to speak, but there's times where it's like, no, nah, I, I want to be picked, so mm. just sort of keep your mouth shut. Um, so, yeah, it's again all part of the journey and I want to, I want the hockey roost to be in a better place um you know now that i've left but so that there's young girls that can walk in and just be themselves and that they can have a job and feel comfortable to talk to a coach about having that job and have flexibility and be able to play and make heaps of mistakes but still know that the coach is right there with them and that the team will support them and all of these different things like that's all i ever wanted with the group and um yeah they're definitely on the right path now yeah. which is great but you know we had to go through what we did yeah. to get there and obviously because it was so close to when the Tokyo Olympics was on too. Obviously, we're throwing a big spanner into preparations and how that all worked out. So, when you got reinstated, I guess, lack of a better term, how does that kind of look? Do you do you go back in and did you assume the same kind of role in the team, like a leader? <laughs> um, well, by that point, we were, I think, maybe like six weeks out from. Oh wow! <laughs> so the timing of it happened as such that I got an opportunity and then. I had three weeks, I think it was three weeks roughly with the group to get back in. And then when I got back in, we had four, maybe it was four weeks roughly, four weeks of preparation together. So instead wow. of a 12 month block, which you normally have, and given Tokyo it would have been two years, uh, I got four weeks with the team. So, majority of the six months leading into Tokyo, I trained by myself. Um, and then, yeah, when I came back into the group, it was a bit different because we had a new coach. And um, by that point, there wasn't too much, like I'm, I'm sort of, you know, like I tried to be um, 
influential in subtle ways. I guess that was always my my method in a sense. Mm-hmm. It's I wasn't a the designated captain or anything like that. It's not about standing up the front and preaching to the group. It was like little conversations and supporting people and trying to help and encouraging and building connections and all of those things. So none of that changed. That was still that's who I am and that's how I play and operate as a player. So the the difference was when I got back in, the the girls were great because I knew that, you know, they'd supported me. It was just a couple of staff members that it was like, ugh, they were involved in getting me out and they're still in there. <laughs> um, so definitely felt that little sort of insecurity a little bit there, but it didn't matter. I was there for the girls. Yeah. I was there to help them and, you know, for us to try and win a gold medal and that's that's all I focused on. Right, so you had four weeks to prepare. Was that in that stage, so those four weeks, was that when you went to Darwin? Was it two weeks up there? And then so it was two weeks before that. Yeah, so we had the Darwin. Oh, wow. The first Darwin tour was getting trying to get picked. Yep. And then we had a tournament in New Zealand. Yep. Uh, and that was where uh, playing for my life essentially. Oh, wow. And was very, very determined there. Um, <laughs> and, you know, that worked because I just knew there. I was like, I, I just have to do. I have to leave them no um, no doubt that I'm the one that will help us win a gold medal. And, and that was sort of my approach. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think I only let one goal in there and then we finished in shootouts and I saved every one of them. And it was just like I just wanted to make it super clear that because every coach wants to win, mm-hmm. right, and I just wanted to make it really clear that if you want to win, you need me in the goals. And, and I feel like I did that. And then once we then as a team went up to Darwin, once the team was announced, that was sort of key prep time and, by then we're all in pretty focused kind of mode, but a lot of the work I'd done in the build-up got me into a really good place mentally and physically. You know, I was working on my fitness because I knew what I needed to do. And even though I was going through a legal battle, I was like, well, I want to be in the best shape possible so that as soon as I get back into the team and we have to do fitness testing, I'm going to just kill it. And um, I was like, again, I don't want to get back in and them to be like, ah, oh, you know, underdone or this or that. I was like, no, nah, I just wanted to make sure they had nothing um, to sort of question and and that also helped me. Yep. I had that belief because it's like I'm the fittest I could possibly be. Um, I've worked on myself mentally and I was seeing a psych really regularly to make sure that I was okay. Mm-hmm. I kept the connection with the girls because I knew that was important and I kept touch with international hockey because, yes. again, you just don't want to be fully removed from a program and then walk in and try yeah. and do an Olympics. So what always interests me is discussion amongst a group going into the Olympics like that. Was there, what was the kind of communication? Was it, we're going in here to win a gold medal or was it, we're going to go in, we're going to do the best we can knowing we didn't have kind of the best preparation, um, I guess from coaching changes and all that staff changes and that going in would disrupt things. Um, I remember early on our coach, so Trini, who was the, yep. the new coach, she made a comment that um, <laughs> the expectations on us were pretty low because <laughs> by that point everyone just thought hockey was a shit show. Yeah. And she said that in a meeting and it sort of just made everyone just go, oh, yeah, because it's kind of true. Like we'd just been through this huge ordeal and in the paper, like we've never been in the paper. And I'm pretty sure I remember being in the paper 10 days straight. Like <laughs> My family saved, kindly saved all the articles. And <laughs> at the time I was, I didn't want anything to do with any of it, but yeah. we got all of this exposure and yeah, people are just like, what is going on with the Hockey Roos? So when we got over there, I don't think anyone was being like, oh, well, these girls are going to dominate. And taking that pressure off, plus, you know, adding there the fact there was no crowds. We had a new coach who just was really open and willing to let us be ourselves. Mm. And you saw the 
you know, what came of that. We, we won five, five out of five and the group just played really, really well. And yeah, it wasn't a fairy tale, but I think given what we had, we did really well. Mm. Well, I love watching as much as I, as much as I could get my eyes in front of the TV and with <laughs> the time difference and work or whatever. I loved watch, watching it all because oh, I, I too went in the low expectations and yeah. being able to um, see girls get up to five, it's five wins straight. Mm-hmm. That, that in itself is, is an accomplishment to get five wins. Not very rarely. Like you it's said, never in been Rio, done. you lost a couple, yeah. couple of pool games. So, And it's just unlucky the how a um, tournament goes. You go into those quarterfinals and you lose and oh, see you later. There's no second chances. No, so that's it. It's not like you, you know, AFL finals. You Because obviously you finished top and in top and you got AFL finals, you finish top, you get a second chance. So, if, if only. If only. <laughs> so... After that, the disappointment. Obviously, you were disappointed in the loss. How was there a debrief after that? Was there like obviously you learned the lessons from the disappointment in Rio? Did you do debrief, and what was the kind of the communication around that? Yeah, we we did speak as yeah. a group, and uh, again, it was a period where people could split off, but they made they made sure that they were a bit more careful with it, and we had opportunities. The biggest blessing I found was the two weeks quarantine that we had to do, because in those two weeks we were forced to debrief we Mm. were forced to stay connected with the group so again normally you'd finish you'd go home like wherever you're from you'd split off and go there and even though you have these really great friendships in the group you probably wouldn't speak to them whereas in quarantine we were chatting all the time um it it allowed you to work through the emotions and what you were feeling with your teammates Um, we had formalized stuff as well we had lots going on that allowed us to properly come down from such a big high um or manage a low, if you like, of, you know, the loss. So I definitely think that helped and um, there's something in that from a future learnings point of view. Uh, obviously mm. no one's going to want to do two weeks quarantine after <laughs> every major, but I think the way that that was handled it definitely helped in the process. And moving on now, you know, the group would have done, I'm sure, a lot of work. I've not been in there, but yeah. I'm sure they would have, you know, to make sure they extract every bit of yeah. learning out of that experience. Mm. And obviously after that there was a big period of downtime. When was the when did you start thinking about retirement? Was that something that was like recent? Or was um, it, um, I was always on my mind. Yep. Um, there was a few different things that happened probably later in um, twenty twenty one, and then it was it was always going to be a potential because we knew from the start that Trini, our coach, wanted Paris to be the focus. Yep. And I knew I was never going to be able to commit to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I still wanted to play on, so I sort of went through the, spoke to the people that I care about, um, had different conversations, waited, you know, allowed for some time to pass, different things happened, you know, Trini got appointed, all of these things that all allowed me to make, a, I suppose, an educated decision. And then, um, yeah, also seeing a couple of my teammates retire and having other friends that have since moved on with their life and seeing that it's like there's a pretty cool world out there outside of hockey, even though you really love it when you're in it. Mm. Um, so it was, yeah, probably latter part of 2021 and no regrets. Like I'm really, I'm really happy. And as I said, transitioned straight into my, um, my other world of nursing and at the time in the mining company. And it's just given me freedom to do other things, which I've also loved. I've been following you on Instagram. You (laughs) like to ride the bike? (laughs) Yeah, I do. (laughs) How many Ks you covered this week? Ooh, fair few. What are we? Friday. Um, I'd be around 
over 100. I was trying to do 100 each weekend plus in between. But even, you know, I've got a new job at Royal Perth and I walk to work now. Just simple stuff like that to be able to get up in the morning and walk to work. So nice. Um, And I walk home, I walk past my nephew's daycare. So sometimes I can pick him up and that stuff that with hockey, you're always racing from one thing to the next. And I also love that life, but now it's just really appreciating the the half hour I get to just, yeah, walk somewhere or, or do those things. Did you ride the bike much when you're playing hockey or is that now something you've wanted to do? You can take no, I've, I've yeah. always ridden. Um, it's just you have to be a bit more careful yeah. with the soreness. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like obviously coming off is an issue, but like right now my legs are very sore and I wouldn't want to get to that situation if I knew I had training tonight yeah, yeah. or tomorrow. At a game or whatever. Yeah, but now soreness is like, oh, well. <laughs> like you mentioned just before, it's a pretty cool world out there. If you had four people to choose to have dinner with, any four people, dead or alive, <laughs> yeah, who would you choose? Oh, okay. Um, uh, Federer, I'd love to meet because he's you know one of the most humble athletes going around. I reckon. Mm-hmm. Um, Oprah, I love oh, yeah. what she does. Oh, um, Chris Hadfield, oh. he's the um, astronaut. He, Never heard of him. Oh, you should look him up. Yeah. He's got a really good YouTube. Um, he became famous because he started doing uh, photos from space and then he's done all these little videos of how things, like how you brush your teeth in space, how you sleep. Oh, okay. I think might have might have seen a couple yeah, of Yeah, so he's got a really good book, An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth. <laughs> really good read. Uh, and I've heard him speak live, so I'd love oh, to cool. spend a meal with him. And then I'd probably invite my nephew, Zachy Boy. He, oh, yeah. he can come along too because... He loves food as much as I oh, do. Nice. Where would where would you what would you have for the meal? Yeah, cuisine, barbecue probably. Oh yeah, nice. yeah. Pork ribs, uh, snacks. My brother cooks a good tomahawk, so oh. maybe he could host. Gosh, starving! I want some bone marrow marrow out, ready to roast tonight for dinner. Really? Yeah. Mm. Well, I've got a nice dinner waiting at home too, so I'm looking oh, forward to that. Lovely. Well, I won't keep you too much longer. Towards the end of the podcast, I have. Uncle Frank segment of the podcast. He's my number one listener, and he gave me a whole bunch of questions to for you to choose. Great, out of the hat. I'll shake him up. You know, you answered that the four one, the four people very quickly. I had Shania on uh, two weeks ago, and her phone we did it over Zoom, and her phone crashed. It took so long for her to pick someone. <laughs> <laughs> She's just freaking out. All right, Uncle Frank. Rach is going to pick a question. Uncle Frank's question. Let's see. What is the best advice you have ever received? Um, easy. This one I've mentioned a few times since I've finished. People don't remember what you achieved. Uh, they remember how you made them feel. So it's kind of like favorite quote I've received. From, so this is from my mate and coach in Melbourne, um, Stack. And from an advice point of view, it's like be, be kind to people. People mm. remember the way that you impact their life. And that sort of guided me with, you know, staying behind to sign autographs to responding to everyone I can on messages and Instagram and stuff, um, you know, treating my teammates with respect and care. And, uh, yeah, I think it's it's been a nice uh, leveler and something to think about amongst all the trying to win and be successful. Mm. There's definitely something in that, being able to make a or give have a positive impact on someone else's life. It's like that giving back to someone mm. and, even if it's just a 1% just smile and say something nice or just be normal, like try not to let your emotions impact someone else's day. Yeah, small things. Yeah, those small things kind of lifts you up too, gives you a bit more energy. Yeah, for sure. So, okay. 
I appreciate it a lot, Rachel. Thank you for coming on the podcast. I mean, it's been an honor. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening to the podcast. <laughs>